one. Again, good morning to everyone, and I take this opportunity to welcome everyone to installment number six of our series entitled The Life of Jesus in Chronological Order. What we will be looking at today is part two of last week's lesson as we uh, ventured up through event number 46. Uh, This is the time frame during Christ Jesus' ministry when um, it was the second Passover to the third Passover that occurred during his ministry. And so today we will be looking at events 47 through 67. Yeah, it's a lot, isn't it? 20 of them. But I think we can get through them. I do have a couple of questions I want to uh, have us think about at the end of the lesson. So in the last session, we did go about the business of reviewing uh, the activity of Christ Jesus from the second going second Passover in his ministry going toward the third and this was actually during the second year of his ministry and we noted that he spent most of the time in the northern area uh, the northern part of the country I should say it was near his hometown as well as near the hometowns of uh, the his uh, disciples who lived there and it was during this period that Christ Jesus became more bold more bold he became more bold at declaring his identity and we saw his, his, his following actually increase greatly to the point where he could no longer move about as freely as he did in the, in the beginning. And it was during this second year that he officially appointed the 12 apostles as well. And he pulled those 12 apostles from the numerous disciples that he had had. And those 12 had been with him from the beginning of his ministry. And we will find that they were with him, save Judas to the end, to the time that he was uh, resurrected. So in this session, we will continue with the events that finish out that second year of ministry in the area of Galilee. So would you join me in prayer, please? Our blessed Heavenly Father, we love you and thank you, Father. We thank you for your foresight in seeing the nature of us as human beings and the choices that we have to make. And we thank you for sending us our Lord and Savior Christ Jesus who suffering down the cross for our sins. And Father, what a blessing it is that we can look at the word of God and, and see a chronological order of events so that we know with the certainty, Father, that this was not a chaotic event, but this was basically a planned event. Everything that has happened is planned according to your word and according to your will. And Father, may we each and every day, Father, maintain our level of faith, knowing that our faith is not about yesterday, it's not about tomorrow, but it's about today, because today is the time, the moment that we are alive, and that is the time and the moment that we can express this faith in you. Father, thank you for hearing our prayers this morning. These things I pray and thank you for in Christ Jesus' most holy name. Amen. So we get to event 47. So we get to event 47. The Sermon on the Mount is probably, if you think about it, the most compact teaching covering the Christian experience found in the New Testament. It is also recorded by Luke in a different variation, which suggests that this sermon, this Sermon on the Mount, it was preached more than once. It was preached more than once. 
Okay? It was re- in other words, it was repeated, which is to say this right here. If you, if you have a good sermon, if you have a good sermon, it's not a bad idea to do it again. You know, sometimes, and this is just James' thought, this is not the gospel according to James. Sometimes we think we have to go out and reinvent the wheel every time we preach. Sometimes we, have to think, we, we think we have to reinvent the wheel just to do evangelism, but we don't. God has given us everything that we need, and, and like we're told in Ecclesiastes, there is nothing new under the sun that we can come up with. So then the Beatitudes, as some call them, it actually describes then the attitude and the spirit of those who are freed from the law. And those who are now motivated by grace, those who are now enabled by the Holy Spirit, and those who are now guided by the word of Christ. We're talking about the church. So I ask this question right here. It's rhetorical. How else could the meek be happy? How else could one see God? How else could one inherit the kingdom of God? Um, how else can one rejoice in persecution? And you can say, how else, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So what Jesus describes in this sermon, in this sermon is the life of one who lives in the kingdom, which is not yet come, but was about to be established with his death and his resurrection. So the Sermon on the Mount is then is the preview, a preview of the church and its life. Event 48. Healing of the centurion's servant. Now, this miracle took place in Capernaum. As we have talked about the previous week, Capernaum is the adult home of our Lord and Savior Christ Jesus, adult hometown. So what was interesting in his dialogue with this man was that Jesus had just preached a sermon about what? About the kingdom and life in the kingdom to the Jews. Now, remember the Jews, they are assuming that it's all about us. They're assuming it's all about us. It's not about anybody else, just us. So in healing this non-Jews servant, Jesus reminds us here is that entry into the kingdom is not based, I mean, rather, it's based on faith. It is not based on culture. It is not based on tradition. It is not based on who your family is, but it's based on faith. So the centurion believed Jesus, and on top of that, the Jews were amazed at his faith to the point where Christ Jesus said himself, he had not found such faith even among the Jews. Now, this is what made the people angry with him. Now, when I say this is what made the people angry with him, there were two groups of people that was angry with Christ Jesus at this point. The leaders were upset because he threatened their authority. But the people... The people were upset because he offered the kingdom both to the Jews and to the Gentiles based on faith. And the only, the only special treatment that the Jews got in all of this was they received the invitation first. Other than that, that was it. That was it. No other special privileges. Event 49. Uh, raising the widow's son. This is one of the three times that Jesus performs the miracle of raising someone from the dead. The other two times we read about one of them, read about one of them later, and that would be uh, Zairus' daughter, and the other was Lazarus. 
So aside from being a mighty sign in itself, that is raising a person from the dead, it was also proof then that, that he was the Messiah since the scripture said the Messiah would be able to do this. The Messiah would be able to raise someone from the dead. And it was also a preview of his own resurrection. So think about it like this. One who had the power to raise others from the grave, not one time, not two times, but three times, they certainly would have the power to raise themselves or to be raised themselves. Event 50. Jesus rebukes the unbelieving, not people, (laughs) persons, but the unbelieving cities, cities. So even though there was great interest, even though there were great crowds, even though he performed many miracles, even though he taught for long periods of time, the main cities in the area, Capernaum, Bethesda, and Chorazin, all of them failed to accept him. All of them failed to recognize him as Messiah. So Jesus does two things here. He does two things in response to their rejection. Number one, he rebukes them and warns them of their eventual judgment and destruction. But he also realizes this right here. Even though you have the majority in those cities who, who may be refusing to see me as the Messiah, who may be rejecting me, who may be turning their backs on me, he invites those from those cities who are burdened and weakened to come to him. Now the point is that these cities felt themselves to be too wise. They felt themselves to be too superior to believe in him. So what does he do? He rejects them and invites the lowly to come. Event 51. The woman anoints Jesus' feet. Now, in this particular setting, what we have is this. Jesus is eating with Simon the Pharisee. And while eating, a woman comes and anoints his feet with her tears, with perfume. She kisses them. She dries them with her, with her hair. Now, it's ironic that Simon, when you think about those three cities we just mentioned, personifies all of those three cities with his self-righteous attitude, not just toward the woman, but also toward Jesus. Toward the woman, he, he rejects her because she's a sinner. And for Christ Jesus, he, 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 dis, he displayed an unbelieving attitude. He failed, if you will, to honor Christ Jesus in any way by washing his feet or even by anointing his head with oil. The woman, on the other hand, represents all of those weary and heavy laden peoples Jesus calls to himself. She brought her sorrow. She brought her tears. She brought her guilt. And she laid them at the feet of Jesus. And you know what happened? She left unburdened. She left forgiven. There's another time when Jesus has his feet washed. And we'll see this later in our lesson. And it was washed by, his feet were washed by Mary, the sister of Martha. And that was near the end of his ministry. Event 52. More circuit preaching in Galilee. So Jesus continues his preaching ministry with the apostles with him. And this time Luke mentions how 
his ministry was financed, which is interesting. Many of the wealthy women from the king's court supported Christ Jesus and supported his apostles in their ministry. Event 53. Jesus heals a demoniac. Now, why is this significant? Uh, What is significant about this? Well, the significant thing about the healing of this demon-possessed man was that it marked a new line of attack taken against Christ Jesus by the Pharisees. Now, as we noticed earlier, those, the Pharisees, they, they would come from all over. They would come all the way from Jerusalem, wherever Christ Jesus was speaking or teaching or doing miracles because they were looking for ways to attack him. And what we find now is that these attacks are beginning to become more and more ferocious. You know, they're, they're, they, they're trying to discredit his teaching. They're trying to discredit his authority. Now they make an attack against his character saying that, of all things, he was of the devil, Beelzebub. And Christ Jesus answered that if this was so, then Satan is destroying himself because, if you will notice, he cast a demon out of the man rather than putting a demon in the man. Event 54. The crowd seeks a sign. The crowd. Who are the crowd? The Pharisees, the strives. The Pharisees and strives respond by saying that they want a miracle. They want a sign in order to, for Christ Jesus to prove his divinity. But Christ Jesus tells them that aside from the ones already done, which was numerous, the one sign that will settle the matter once and for all is his death and his subsequent resurrection. He talks about the sign of Jonah, and in talking about the sign of Jonah, three days in the belly of the great fish and talking about the signs of Jonah you might say it was a cryptic way of Christ Jesus talking about his death and his resurrection the prophet said that the Messiah would have power over death even Paul in Romans 1 at verse 4 says that the resurrection is the definitive proof that Jesus is the Son of God. It is the definitive proof that Jesus is the Messiah. Ooh, it was rough getting down there. 55, event 55. Jesus' family come for him. Now, you know, family is a wonderful thing. They hear all of this stuff that's going on, how people are attacking Christ Jesus. So family do what family does, okay? So all of these accusations, all of this confusion that was going on, it leads his family to come and try to take him back home. Okay, you're losing it. Come home, son. Their concern may have been sincere. Their concern may have been normal. But there is a flip side, the elliptical side of of it, if you will. But it also showed disbelief. It also shows disbelief. And Jesus points out, points this out when he claims that those who believe in him are his true brothers, are his true sisters. This is the same with us. Our true family is our Christian family. 
And if we prefer non-believers, even if they are family to believers, then we love the world more than the kingdom. It reminds me of a situation we had down at, at uh, K Beach Road a long time ago where there was a lot of things going on that the men who were responsible for the leadership of the congregation was trying to correct. And I just happened to get there early enough that day for that meeting. And one of the brothers, was, he was honest and he was sincere. He said, if that was with my son, I love him too much to do that, to take that action. And, and being a young kid on the block, I just gave a good response to that. And a good response was this, and you're ab- absolutely right. You should not be serving as an elder. Because as an elder, we can't show partisanship like that, where if a family member is doing something that family member shouldn't be doing in the body of Christ, we're supposed to take action with them just the same way we take action with anyone else. We can't be showing like, well, that's my son, that's my daughter, that's my wife, that's my whoever. I can't do that to them, but I can do it to you. That's not right. That's how churches are divided by things like that. Elders not doing their jobs as they need to be doing them. Event 56. Seven parables from a boat. Again, he is in the uh, Galilee region at Capernaum, which is his home. And he enters a boat and he begins to teach the crowd from shore. Now, interesting to think about this particular lesson. It, it was done in, oops, it was done in seven parables. And the writer records a series of these parables that were strung together and it's, it's as a lesson. The sower and the seed, the wheat and the tares, the mustard seed, the leaven, uh, treasure in a field, pearl of great price, dragnet. Now the next group of events, it's going to be interesting how I present them. I'm going to present about four events in succession, and then we're going to talk about all of them together. So event 57, Jesus calms the storm. Event 58, Jesus cures two demoniacs. Event 59, Jesus raises Zairus' daughter from the dead and cures the woman with a hemorrhage. And we get to number 60. Jesus heals the blind and another demoniac. So what we find is this. After the long teaching session took place, the writer describes a series of of amazing miracles as Jesus leaves one shore of the lake and crosses over to the other. So it's kind of like he was going back and forth across the lake. And each time he was teaching and doing miracles and so forth. So on this first pass, we find that he miraculously calms a fierce storm. On his arrival, he cures a demoniac and sends him off to his native country where Jesus would later go to preach. And he would have great success there because of this man's uh, witness of him. He crosses the lake again, and this time he raises a young girl, Zairus' daughter, from the dead, and he heals a woman who is suffering from an incurable hemorrhage. And finally, he cures a blind man, one who was unable to speak. The net result, the net result was that he had performed miracles, the likes of which 
no one had before him had ever been able to do. Okay? He demonstrated that he had the power over creation. He had power over death. He had power over all kinds of diseases. Exactly the kind of power that no ordinary faith healer could and did have. The only one that's capable of this kind of power was God himself. And God gave him the ability to do this. Event 61. Jesus rejected in Nazareth. You know, home can be rough sometimes. <laughs> you grew up there, everybody knew you. And they go, yeah, I remember when you were, mm, and you used to do, mm, no, 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 no. But, you know, people do change. So, in event 61, Jesus rejected in Nazareth. What we find is this. Despite all of these signs that Christ Jesus has done, despite all the wonders, despite all the teaching, his native city still refuses to believe in him. Despite all of this, what does he do? He doesn't give up on him. He visits them again. He's trying to reach them. He's trying to get them to change their mindset. Now, unlike other places, they don't try to stone him. They don't try to stone him. But, you know, every time I think about this, they didn't try to stone him. But to me, what they did was even worse. They simply refused to accept him. And for this reason, he does no miracles among them. Now, somebody say, well, James, if he were being stoned, he's dead. Yeah, but like somebody said a long time ago, death isn't always the worst thing. It's the hurt that we have to live with when people are doing things to us in this life, and we don't die. So death isn't always the worst thing. You know, Russ, I'm going to use you for this example because in a class, Russ said a lot of time, so what? I'm going to heaven. <laughs> <You know>? so, <laughs> so, so, you know, death is death, but I'm going to heaven, so I'm not worried about it. So as we get to event 62, we have this final preaching tour through Galilee. So Jesus here, and when we say final, makes one final tour through his native region, Okay. And after this, he turns and goes further north to do his work up there. And then he returns down to Jerusalem for the feast. He continues to preach. He continues to teach. He continues to heal where they receive him, but not in his hometown. Event 63. Jesus sends out the 12. So after several tours with him, Jesus now sends the 12 out by themselves to begin their public ministry in their own towns and in their own villages. The writers provide the instructions for ministry that Jesus actually provided with them and also describe the power he gave them to do their work. And they go off with the power that to do miracles in his name power given to confirm their message about the kingdom of God. Event 64. Herod takes, Herod takes note of him. All the writers describe the excitement when the apostles returned from their first uh, preaching tour. 
it's like uh, like we do in media businesses these days. It was like they come together for an after-action report, something like that, right? So he takes them to a quiet place. Yeah, they can rest there, but uh, they can do some rest. But also you can say they were there so that he can um, uh, teach them more but also respond to some of the questions they may have had for him regarding uh, some of the problems they may have encountered. You know, it's kind of like when you get together in those type of meetings, we pull out the best practices, we continue that, and what's not a best practice, we take it out, okay? So their success, however, is cut short. Why? Because the crowds figured out where they were. The crowds figured out where they were, and they found them. So what does Christ Jesus do? He responds by teaching And when the hour is late, he performs an exceptional miracle. He feeds 5,000 with a few loaves of bread and a few fish. Jesus will perform this miracle again at another site, but this time for 4,000. So the miracle is a sign of several things. We can say that. Number one, Jesus' power over the physical universe and the law is evident, and the laws is evident. There is also a preview of the great spiritual banquet he is preparing in his kingdom, and there is also encouragement to rely on Jesus to provide for not only our spiritual needs but also our physical needs. When I was at Nikiski and I was doing some research on a lesson, I came across this analogy. Now. I said analogy. I did not say it was in the Bible, okay? It was an analogy. And, and how the analogy came together was trying to help this person understand the difference between being in, and being in heaven for an eternity and being in hell for an eternity. And he had these two individuals sitting there talking. And they were comparing notes, if you will. And both of them have said how beautiful it was there. Okay, great. And then both of them talked about that great feast that their leader had prepared for them. That was all good. So the, the, the person from heaven said, okay, tell me about the feast. And he said, man, it's all, it's all the great stuff you ever want to eat. He said, but, but there's a problem. He said, what's that? He said, the utensils are, are really, really long. And you can't eat with your hand. And you can't just get down and eat like that. You have to use the utensils. He said, so we got all these foods in there with these super long utensils. And we can't eat. And the person from heaven said, and that's the difference. In heaven, we feed each other. We serve each other. So everyone gets a chance to eat. And I thought, wow, what an analogy. That's what we do here <laughs> we serve each other we help each other it is not me against you and you against me it's us working together in the name of god to serve each other and to serve our community event 65 the 12 return and then we get to event 66 so Jesus sends the 12 across the lake. So after his debriefing and the miracle, Jesus would send them once again across the lake. Remember, they were going back and forth. They sent them back across the lake in order to do their work. And it was at this occasion that Jesus came to them while they were still out at sea, on the lake, I should say. And he was walking on water. And Peter saw this and requested permission 
to come to him, and he was granted that permission. Now note that they had, the apostles, had themselves performed miracles. And so Peter was primed to what we like to say, uh, push the edge of the envelope, if you will. He wanted to push the edge a little bit for his newly given power by asking to do yet another miracle, and that is to come to Christ Jesus on the water. Peter learned that all is possible, but only through faith. And he learned that his faith had boundaries, just like our faith had boundaries. As I said in the prayer, our faith isn't about yesterday. It's not about tomorrow. It's about now. The definition of faith. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now. Yesterday it was that too. It would be that tomorrow, yes. But we are alive right now. We are alive right now. I would venture to say, you know, Peter started to sink when we read that. Peter lost focus. Peter lost focus, which tells us something about our faith. We, don't, we can't afford to lose focus. We can't afford to lose focus on Christ Jesus. We cannot do that. Event 67, the last one. The crowd seek for a sign. Now, the people have witnessed many miracles and now find Jesus with the apostles on the other side of the lake. And after and all of this, of all of this witnessing, they demand another sign. Not ask, demand another sign. Now think about all of this. These same people, they had been fed miraculously the day before. And they want more. But the question is, what do they want more of? They will follow a Messiah who provided for not only their spiritual needs, but also their physical needs as well. And when I say their physical needs, in other words, without any effort on their part, they get what they need. And remember in, in, in Thessalonians, if a man does not work, neither shall he eat. This is a passage where Jesus uses the imagery of bread to describe himself as the bread from heaven. And he also, he also alludes to the communion which will be instituted in the future. Drink of my blood, eat of my flesh. This is the first time he makes the astonishing promise that if someone believes in him, he will resurrect that person from the dead. This dialogue of all places occurred in the synagogue at Capernaum. And because of his teaching, and because of his teaching, many of the disciples abandoned him at this point. What was he teaching? He was teaching about him being the bread and manna from heaven. He was teaching about eating his flesh. He was teaching about his resurrection. He was teaching about... And because of this, notice I didn't say the apostles. I said many of the disciples abandoned him at this point. It was a critical moment for the apostles as well. Why? Because they had seen and heard so much. Now Jesus was speaking about things that they could not comprehend. He challenged their faith. And Peter responded, speaking for all of the apostles, when he said this, they had no place else to go but to Christ Jesus. 
no place to go other than to Christ Jesus, despite their lack of understanding. They believed. That is often the case in our lives today. Things happen. The good, the bad, and the ugly happens. We're faced with issues we don't understand. We ask the question, why? So what is our test? Our test is this, and it's a elliptical, if you will. The one side is, do we continue to believe and obey, even though we might not understand? Or do we stop believing and obeying because we do not understand? That is what we call walking by faith. What are we reading in Second Corinthians 5? Christians walk by faith, not by sight. Despite the miracles that they saw, despite the teachings that they received, even the apostles had to do a stretch by faith and not by sight. So that ends our lesson for today, and I do have a few questions. This one, I have two, but we probably just get to one. So, a long time ago, someone said, um, what we need are, they were thinking about the collection. They said, what we need are more people like that brother that gives a larger amount in the collection plate. And again, me being young and dumb, didn't know how to shut up. I said, instead of that, why don't we say we need 10 more that give less, but 10 more souls? Because that's more souls coming to Christ Jesus versus more money going in the collection plate. And that's the way we need to think. Yes, we, we, we have bills we have to pay here, um, salaries we have to pay, lights to keep on. Yes, that is true. But if we're in the business of looking for big contributors versus lost souls, we miss the point. I always say this right here. If we take care of the faith, the numbers would take care of themselves. If we take care of the faith, the numbers would take care of themselves. So with that said, When you're working with someone, you're evangelizing with someone, and that person say to you, I need to know it all before coming to Christ, how can you respond? Notice I didn't say how do. I said how can you respond? I, I love what you're teaching, Brother Lawrence. I know what you're teaching, but I, I need to know it all. I need to know it all. And once I know it all, I'll be ready to get in that water baptism with you. No, that's, I'm sorry, that's not rhetorical. <laughs> you go ahead. <laughs>
Oh, thank you. Uh, brother Brother uh, Danny said, go to the Council of Acts, and we'll see that it wasn't possible for me, all of those people there to know everything or even a, a good portion of everything, but they still believed and they were baptized. I saw another hand up over, was it your hand, Mike? Yeah, Mike, Michael. Thank you. What, what our brother Michael said was we, we learn every day. We learn every day. When we look at, I'll be right to you in a moment, Tony. When we look at the word of God, I was thinking about this. It's like us growing up, okay? We, 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 we hit that age and we do what's called kindergarten. Then we do elementary school. Then we do high school. I mean, middle school. Yeah, if they call it now. They didn't have that back then when I was growing up. Uh, high school college and stuff like that and sometimes people want to look at uh especially when you get up older you know it's like there's the freshman level christian and there's the sophomore level and the, and the junior level and the senior level and then the the, the upper the, the upper graduate level like masters and, and bachelor but that's not the same it's the same word of god the more and more we stay in it like michael is talking about the more and more we gain from it and but Guy in Woods, 92 years old. I can't forget this man. He said, hey, I'm 92 years old and still learning. He had been doing that since like 16 years old. And he grew up in a family where uh, preachers and elders. So he had been learning for all those years. And he's still saying, I'm still learning. Tony, go ahead. Ah, yeah. What Tony said was, you go into Romans 11 and we see the, the word of God tells us that the message is so deep. Basically, we can never learn it all. And we can't. Yes, Danny. Thank you. Uh, what Brother Danny said is when we look at the Great Commission, we see the instructions there is to go, teach, baptize, and teach. And Christ Jesus gave us a wonderful promise. And lo, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. Yes, Brother Lee. That's it. Mm-hmm. That's it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
Thank you. Second uh, Timothy 316. All scriptures God breathed. And it's proper for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. It said that we will be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work, but it did not say, and you will know it all. It does not say that, and you will know it all. But we will be equipped for the work that's before us. And, and experience teaches us things. Some things happen to us at this stage and that we think is the worst thing that could happen to us. At a later stage in life, something has happened, and we, at least I do, I look back at that and say, God prepared me for this event back over there. And, I, and I've heard other people say that too. And it's amazing how he does that. We just don't know. We just don't know. Our, our thing is to just go about the business of doing. Just go about the business of doing. So, thank you all for joining me today. And Miss Grace, it's always good to see you. And look forward to seeing you all next week as we venture into installment number seven. And the, um, the text for next week's lesson is out on the table in the foyer. Thank you.